This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What I've tried to say is we need to spend more of our time now not talking about just the pandemic of coronavirus and COVID-19, but also this epidemic of despair. They were just very uh, thoughtful people who had a point of view, and they were out there expressing it, and uh, it's, a, it's a healthy thing. You only sort of see the bad side of it, but there's a good side to it, and that is people are taking responsibility. Isn't that a viable topic to be discussed? Well, hey, it's Dr. Phil, and you found your way to fill in the blanks again. This is a very different fill in the blanks, probably different than anyone I've done since I started to do this because I usually am bringing information thoughts and opinions, but I'm actually showing up tonight with a lot of questions of some things that are bothering me greatly. And if they don't bother you, they should. This affects each and every one of you that's listening and the loved ones that you have on two different levels. And I'm going to get to what I'm talking about in a minute, but the brief version of that is why are we not having an open dialogue about the science involved in this pandemic right now? Why is this being shut down? That's bothering me a lot. Secondly is, what do we all need to be doing now as we're coming to a point where obviously things are changing and we're starting to open back up? I have two guests tonight that, in full disclosure, are very, very dear friends of mine. They're as close to family as you can get. This is a husband-wife attorney pair. They are First Amendment lawyers extraordinaire. That's not all they do, but in my opinion, it is what they do best. I'm talking about Nancy Wells Hamilton. She did her undergraduate work at Skidmore College. She got her law degree from the University of Houston Law Center. If anyone doesn't know, is quite an accomplishment. Her husband, Charles L. Chip Babcock, he is an attorney as well. He did his undergraduate work at Brown University. He went to Boston University Law School. And these two have been practicing together and married for a long, long time. Let's just put it that way. I don't want to embarrass either one of them. So guys, thank you very much for joining me tonight. I've got important things to talk about. You're in quarantine, right? And I understand that you're in Florida. We are. We're in. Uh, we're in Naples, Florida, where we have a second home, and uh, we've been working from home uh, pretty much all day long, and at dinner and and watch TV for a little bit, and then go to bed and get up and have Groundhog Day the next day. I know you've been working a lot. I know that you're busy, and I know that it's late at night. But as I said, I've just really been concerned about this. But before we get into that, 
How is this treating you? How are you guys doing in quarantine? I know you have a beautiful place down there, and you fortunately got caught in Florida when everything got shut down. How lucky was that? Yeah, we were fortunate. Uh, and to say the least, uh, we, we really have nothing to complain about. We've been, uh, it's been great. We're used to working on the road and being out, so it really, frankly, hasn't interrupted our <laughs> business practice all that much. You know, the estimates are that 37% of people can work from home. Out of all the workforce in the United States, 37% can work from home, and the remaining majority has to actually be on site. They have to be on the assembly line or in the store or in the service position to help others. Fortunately, the three of us are among the 37% that can work from home, but so many others either cannot work at all because the economy has been shut down, or they are essential workers. And I'm not just talking about doctors and nurses and paramedics and EMTs. I'm talking about the clerks in the stores, those that are stocking the shelves, those that are cleaning. All of these people, you don't necessarily think about that as being essential, but if it wasn't for these dedicated men and women that are doing these jobs, we would be in a lot of trouble, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The guy that uh, uh, fixed my car today, uh, <laughs> I felt was pretty essential. Um, so, yeah, there are a lot of people in that in uh, in that boat. We're lucky that uh, it, it was no big deal for us. A uh, little hard for our legal assistants to uh, uh, to work from home. They had to get used to it and had to move in their computers and get that set up. But um, but we did. Nancy and I didn't miss a beat. Well, you guys know we've been working together since, I believe it was January of 1990 at CSI. I think the first case was the JFK assassination. And of course, that was almost 27-something years after the assassination. But a book had been written and the AMA had been sued for saying some ugly things about the authors. And we were defending the American Medical Association. And I remember we were working and had the Zabruder tape and the Warren Commission file and all sorts of things getting ready to take that to trial. So it's been a long, long time. And for people who don't know, Chip and Nancy and I were intimately involved in the Oprah Winfrey mad cow case in Amarillo, Texas. That's been, gosh, how many years now? That's been 20 years? Not that we're counting. Yeah, 22 years. <laughs> 1998. 98. Yeah, it's amazing that it's been so long. Suffice it to say that the three of us have been working together and knowing each other for a long time. I've seen both of them in the trenches. I've seen them in the courtrooms and have incredible respect for both of them and their defense of people's right to have a voice in America. And that's my question to start with. I am really, really troubled by the fact that we seem to be having some absolutely puzzling censorship that I don't understand. People are putting things up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all different kinds of social platforms, and then people are coming in and taking them down, not because they're obscene, not because they're inciting people to violence, but just because they've decided that it's not the kind of information that should be put out there. Chip, Nancy, what the hell is going on with that? 
Well, um, it, 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 we're, we're in a, we're in a kind of a sad place. The, uh, the pandemic, which ought to be focusing on uh, really two sciences, the, the medical science uh, and the mental health science that you contribute so much to, uh, but also the economic science. Uh, economics is a science. And uh, it seems to me like on so many other issues, uh, we have divided into two camps and neither camp uh, is interested in listening uh, to each other very much. That's an overstatement, of course, but but it has become, unfortunately, political. Part of the problem is we're close to an election, and so everything is political. Uh, part of it is, it is because uh, the uh, person in the White House uh, uh, evokes strong reaction by people that favor him and people that are against him. Uh, and that is spilled over into our, our public dialogue and, you know, I've been around a long time and doing this kind of work for a long time, and I, I've never seen it worse. I've never seen it where uh, we are not listening to each other. Uh, and as you say, we're not even talking to each other. I don't think people want to hear each other, frankly. If, if it's an opposing view, they don't want to hear it. Uh, and that's, that's really a shame. And it doesn't even have to be a, an opposing view. It's just, as you say, having a discussion about the facts and the science. And I think so many people these days feel that their science is the right science, that there's only one science, and, and that's not true. Well, uh, and it's led us to a great dilemma. Well, you're exactly right, both of you. And the thing that worries me is, and by the way, I've consistently said during the coronavirus pandemic that we should all listen to and follow the advice of medical professionals. Not politicians necessarily, but the medical professionals. And everything I've said about the pandemic has been in support of those experts. I've had like 15, 16, 17 of them on a couple of dozen shows that I've done about this. My hat was off to them then, and it's off to them now. We owe them a debt of gratitude. Look, they were dealing with a paucity of data, and frankly, a lot of it was flawed. The models were wrong. The information was wrong. You know why? Because it's all they knew at the time. I'm not here to criticize them. I still support them. They did yeoman service for all of us under very difficult circumstances. We've known about this novel coronavirus, SARS-2, for like three months, maybe since January, so maybe four or five months. I've said from the outset that we should all follow the mandates put in place by our public officials. They have had to make difficult decisions with limited and sometimes flawed data, and we owe each of them, Democrats and Republicans alike, gratitude for stepping up and making their best effort to provide leadership. Now, to those who tried to politicize this situation, those who have exploited it with fraudulent ads and not the politicians, but these scammers that go out and say, I've got a cure for coronavirus and that sort of thing. For people that have tried to exploit this, shame on them. And I hope the voters won't reward bad behavior for the politicians that have tried to politicize this, and I hope the law catches up with the scammers. None of us should look kindly on those sort of people, but to leaders of all stripe, I say thank you for what you've tried to do. But as we've learned more, shouldn't we be encouraging open dialogue and debate about this? Yeah, it, you know, absolutely. The, the one thing that, 
it's not a new situation. Um, science evolves. And the, the science of the COVID-19 has evolved, you know, sometimes by weeks, uh, by days, uh, and it is evolving. It's back, Phil, to the, uh, to the Oprah case uh, that Nancy and I tried with, with your help, and, and frankly, we wouldn't have won it without you. Uh, but she did a show on mad cow disease because of a startling uh, development and announcement by the World Health Organization and the, uh, the British Medical Establishment in 1996. By 1998, uh, the science had radically changed. Uh, and, uh, and so what, what may have been true or not true, or at least debatable in 1996, was no longer open to debate in 1998 when we tried the case. It's just it, science moves on, it marches on, and we have now accelerated the scientific inquiry uh, with the urgency that this pandemic has brought to us and the discoveries that we're making and the progress that we're making on the science side is startling. Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, that accelerated scientific inquiry is going to result in something that, that uh, cures this problem. Uh, and hopefully that by the time we finally cure it, uh, we will have a, a economic system uh, that is viable. And if we don't pay attention to that, uh, we may be finding a, a, a cure that um, uh, has not treated all the diseases that we have, both, uh, both medical and economic. No, I was just going to say that, you know, again, everyone, you know, through the pandemic, through the shelter in place and isolation, Though we do also, it has separated people from really having discussions with one another. I mean, granted, people get together on Zoom and have Zoom cocktail hours, but you generally are doing that with like-minded people. Uh, and so that, that sort of cuts down the avenues to, to learning from others. Uh, and then, uh, well, I just lost my track. <laughs> I lost my thought. Well, no, you didn't. I think you made your point quite well, and that is that sometimes when people get together, maybe in a more relaxed environment that's not so restrained, then maybe some dialogue flows from that. But, you know, I saw something recently. There's a medical professor at Stanford University. His name is Dr. J. Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya is a pure scientist. I don't think he would know a Democrat from a Republican if they had a flag waving over their head or could care less from everything I can hear from listening to him. But he's been doing studies. He did a study in Santa Clara, California. He did a study, very inventive, I thought, with Major League Baseball. He said, well, here's like 27 cities I can get to cooperate. So let's go to all the Major League Baseball offices and figure out what the incidence is with this certainly different group, but representing 27 cities. And let's see if we can find out what the incidence is of this disease. Is it really as widespread as we've been telling people, or is it not? We knew what we knew when we knew it, but we have testing now. Let's see if we can find out more. He published his findings, and the findings were basically that it was not nearly as lethal, deadly, as it had originally been thought, and that it was much more widespread 
in terms of the infection numbers, people that had had it, the denominator in the fraction than what people had assumed. And I'm telling you, he was ripped like you wouldn't believe on social media platforms. How dare you say this? How How dare you report scientific findings? It's like, what are you, boy epidemiologists? It doesn't matter if you sell shrimp out of a van down by the river. If your data is what it is, it is what it is, right? I don't get that. What's the problem? What am I missing? Well, I think, I, I don't think you're missing anything personally, uh, because the, the, the problem is people were terrified to start. And rightly so, and that fed a, a dynamic and a panic, frankly, within the community. I think as time has gone on, obviously there is more and more data, and they're finding out that maybe as awful as this disease is for certain people, it's not for the majority. But you know, I'll cut to the chase: the it, the media does not seem interested in publishing any of the good news. It's feeding off of the, the, frankly, again, the sort of terror and frenzy and the bad news that's out there, uh, I think is what has people glued to their television sets, glued to the social media. And uh, so there's there's no room for the other voice because it's contrary to sort of the herd mentality. My attitude, Nancy, is I don't have a problem. Dr. Fauci got up and said, some things early on about how many more times contagious this was than the flu. Now, as it turns out, he probably overestimated that, but I sure as hell don't know. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an infectious disease expert. I'm not a molecular microbiologist, but I am interviewing a lot of them, and they all agreed with him when he was saying this initially. But now, as more information is coming to light, they're saying, well, that doesn't seem to be the case. Is it terribly deadly for a significant portion of the population? No question about it. It certainly is. However, it doesn't seem to be as deadly for all parts of the population and as lethal as it was originally thought to be. That doesn't mean Dr. Fauci did anything wrong. It's evolving. As he is getting more information, you would think that information would want to be reported, but it's like we're not looking at the science. For example, if you go to the World Health Organization on social distancing, they say to stay separated by one meter. They have no scientific evidence for that, and so we've adopted six feet. That's not the recommendation of the World Health Organization. Did we just make that up? Is there any science to support that? I don't understand why people get upset if you start asking questions about those things. Well, you know, you you made a comment a minute ago about how uh, Dr. Pradhari got ripped on social media. And uh, it's too bad if anybody gets ripped. But, you know, that's that's part of dialogue, too. And that's uh, one of the uh, one of the geniuses and the curses of social media and the internet. Uh, there's a lot of chatter. There's a lot of talk. You know, sometimes the scientists who don't support your worldview, uh, you're going to criticize. Uh, but that's okay. In fact, you know, maybe he will re- see one post 
and say, hmm, I hadn't thought of that, uh, and react to it in a positive way and, uh, and adjust his, uh, his inquiry accordingly. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, as you know, a kind of a First Amendment purist, and I think more speech is better. Uh, I, I think uh, where we get in trouble is when the government tells us we can't say something, you know, that, that, that is the core of the First Amendment. You, you can't allow the government to suppress our speech. Uh, and in our country, fortunately, that, that doesn't happen all that much. So then you move to the, uh, you know, the search engines uh, like Google and Facebook and others. Uh, that's not the government, but awful, awful powerful. And when they pull something down uh, and say, no, you, that's a thought you can't communicate, that's troubling. It's not troubling from a legal First Amendment standpoint. It's just troubling in terms of the public dialogue. Well, that's what concerns me is because it tamps down public dialogue. And, you know, I've had my share of criticism over the years. And, you know, I do practice what I preach. I've said those people criticizing me. I'll fight for their right to be wrong. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> if they want to make asinine statements, that's fine. And I'm not thin-skinned, so I don't worry about that. My dad used to say, you better spend 5% of your time deciding whether you got a good deal or a bad deal, and 95% of your time deciding what you're going to do about it. And right now, I'm not looking back at what politicians or scientists have gotten wrong because I think in the main, certainly the scientists have all been very earnest in what they've said. Even if now you go back and play back some of the things that they said, they go, oh my God, I can't believe I said. That's what you knew at the time. Thank you for taking a position and doing the best that you could. But what I've tried to say is we need to spend more of our time now not talking about just the pandemic of coronavirus and COVID-19, but also this epidemic of despair. Because right now, we're counting lives with a clicker that are being attributed to COVID-19, but it's like we're paying very little or any attention at all to what is happening because of the quarantine and what's going to happen when people get out of quarantine and go back and find that the entire economy has changed. And part of the change is that their mom and pop business that they spent 30 years, 40 years, 50 years establishing has gone away in three months, never to be recovered again. And I cannot tell you, Nancy, Chip, the messages that I've gotten from people that talk about an existential crisis, they are absolutely lost. What are we going to do? We came into this, we had a business, it was a narrow margin, but we were getting by, we were feeding ourselves, we were contributing members of society. Now they shut the entire world economy down and we've lost everything, what are we going to do when we get back out there? That creates death by despair. That creates an erosion of health and well-being. And it's like nobody wants to talk about that because it sounds like we're criticizing the decisions that have been made and the fact that we went into quarantine. I'm not criticizing the fact that we went into quarantine. I followed every guideline. 
I've tried to set a good example. I've gone on the air every day and told people I'm staying home. I'm doing social distancing. I'm washing my hands. I'm living in quarantine. Do what you're being taught by the CDC and the other scientists. Let's do our part and and get this thing turned around. But I've also been saying all along, there is a price that is being exacted by the shutdown and by the quarantine, and we have to be prepared to deal with that. Isn't that a viable topic to be discussed? Well, absolutely. And, you know, as I said, this thing started with lots of, uh, you know, shelter in place for two weeks. And then some places have now, I think your city of Los Angeles has now extended it to another three months. But I think some of the good news that's coming out of this, and again, it kind of aligns with the speech aspect, is you are seeing uh, citizens, protesters, protesting or trying to open up shops within guidelines, trying to basically take you know, their responsibility and say, listen, we can be responsible for ourselves. Give us the guidelines. We, we can go out and we don't need to be holed up uh, in shelter and quarantine indefinitely because that is killing the American economy and these families. And I think the, the protest, there's a lot, a lot of people are complaining about it. Again, you only sort of see the bad side of it, but there's a good side of it. And that is people are taking responsibility and stepping up and want to take care of themselves and their families and their communities. Well, I think we are very creative and inventive people. And I think it's the spirit of the American people that has flattened the curve. Look, if anybody thinks that if we go into quarantine for three months and keep our heads down that this virus is just going to say, oh, well, I guess I'll die out. That's not true. When we go back out there, every epidemiologist, infectious disease expert that I've talked to have said that virus was there when we went in quarantine. It's going to be there when we get back from quarantine. The question is, can we spread out the infection rate to the point that it doesn't overwhelm our medical facilities to the point that people die from neglect or an inability to provide them the necessary treatment that they need. If people think that going into quarantine is like, okay, we stayed long enough, so it's all died out. Not true. That was never the goal. The goal behaviorally, psychologically, sociologically was to slow the roll. So whoever's going to get it is just going to get it in a more spread out fashion. Yeah, well, we've we've done that. But but let let me ask you, you know, uh, as you can see from uh, our Zoom thing here, Nancy's 14, so she's not in the high risk category uh, by age. Uh, but uh, but uh, perhaps you, that were true. <laughs> perhaps you and I are. Uh, so so when the quarantine's over, uh, when we open up, uh, what what do we? What everybody gets to make a personal decision about what they do. Uh, what what do we do? You know, somebody we're you know very healthy. Uh, I know you, you play tennis every day. I play most every day. And, uh, you know, feel very healthy, feel good. Uh, so what do, what do we do? What, what personal decisions do we make about this? Well, I think we have to base it on the science, right, Chip? I mean, you and I are, knock on wood, very healthy. But you know what I fear is that some of these decisions have been made for people already. And let me tell you what I'm talking about. I spent 
five and a half hours today, and it was the first time I have been in a public building since March 19th. And I went to my cardiologist here in L.A., and because I just had an echocardiogram done and these nuclear tests where they look at all your arteries and veins and da-da-da-da-da. And so he's over in the Cedars-Sinai complex, and I was talking to a lot of the people that were over there, and they're telling me two things. Number one, because of the decision that was made where hospitals basically converted to COVID-19 treatment centers, and the demand never came. It came in New York. It came in the Bronx. It came in different areas. But for most of the country, their ERs were left empty. Beds were left empty because people did not get elective surgery. That was mandated away. But then people were afraid to go to the hospital because of what they were told about this virus. And we all know that early detection and early intervention are the most powerful tools in the treatment of disease, in the management of disease. Now, I said I'm not an infectious disease expert, but I do have training in behavioral medicine, that is medical psychology. And I know how important it is for people to not be in denial not procrastinate, not put things off. How many lives have been lost because somebody didn't get a colonoscopy, because somebody didn't do what I did today and get my heart checked and my arteries checked? How many lives have been lost or will be lost because by the time they get around to being checked, they go, wow, if you had come in four months ago, we might have could have helped you with this colon cancer, but now it's too late, but you didn't come in four months ago because you were afraid because the world was shut down. And these hospitals are going bust. Even Mayo Clinic is going to report a loss of $900 million because of lost treatment and surgeries at this point. So I think for a lot of people, not necessarily you and I, but for a lot of people, without knowing it, that die may be cast because they passed a threshold of treatment they could have seized but did not because they were caught up in the terror of this disease and they stayed away and now the ship has sailed. Yeah, you know, I know, I know I've stayed away. Of course, in, in Naples, uh, the, the gym that Nancy and I go to is in a hospital. Uh, so we had a double whammy there. No gym, no, no gym in a hospital, but, uh, but yeah, you're right. And, uh, and frankly, one of the things that I'm, you know, planning on doing when I go back uh, home and, you know, in a few weeks, uh, is, is to have my annual checkup, which I haven't missed by, by too many weeks. Uh, but you're right. You gotta, you gotta stay on top of these things. And, uh, when people tell you, you can't do it, that, you know, they're, they're putting you at risk in that way. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We love it. 
like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. And the hospitals are going to have to be bailed out. And, you know, that's hard. You're going to have to be spending billions and billions of dollars for them. And if they can't stay in business, are they going to be laying off people that actually kept us all alive as essential frontline, first-line responders? What, are we going to now say you don't have a job anymore because the hospital's in trouble? So, hey, thanks for putting your life on the line during all this time, but now I'm sorry, we don't need you. We, we can't pay you. The hospital's in trouble. You know, people are saying, are we going to get back to normal And I think the question should be not, are we going to get back to normal, but how do we move forward? Are we ever going to get back to normal? I don't know, but I do know that we have to move forward one way or another. We have to find a way to get out there and put our lives on the highway again and get moving along. That's what I know. Well, in moving forward and getting our lives back on the line, in talking, frankly, with with our own kids. Uh, it's amazing. You think that younger generation would be chomping at the bit to get out, but a number of them are the ones who are sitting at home thinking, I hate being here, but I'm not coming out till I know it's safe. And they're terrified of the risk of coming out. And it's like, what can we do to make it, how can we impress it upon you that that it's time to start to emerge from this quarantine? And they shake their heads and it kind of goes back into the original conversation of not having a conversation because they discount what we say and say, nope, I'm not going out, not not till there's a cure, not till there's a vaccine, not till whatever. And uh, that's that's terrifying when you see those gen- that generation, kids in their 30s or 20s and 30s and 40s, and then the kids that they're raising are all being raised with this this fear. That's that- scary stuff in my book. We had a Zoom cocktail party the other night, and uh, uh, one of our kids' uh, uncles uh, was kind of cross-examining him uh, and and said, you know, if I were you, I would be strategizing, thinking, what the, would it take to get out of this uh, small apartment in New York? I would be trying to come up with a strategy, you know, 0.1, 0.2, 0.3, 4. So what's your strategy? And they went off and had a nice discussion without resolution uh, on that topic. The result was when they're secure, when it's safe. Yeah. When it's safe. I don't think they said the cure, but when, when it's safe. Yeah. Yeah. And when they get back out there, the economy has been impacted. The schools have been impacted. Restaurants, shops, so many jobs. And so as a result, we're going to wind up with despair deaths. Some experts have estimated that there will be an additional 75,000 suicides when this all rolls out. That can't happen. We can't let that happen. We've got all these task forces for the medical side of this, and God bless them. I think they're doing a great job. I know people want to find fault with these experts that have given wrong information early on. They gave the information they had. That's all they can do. And as it evolves, they'll give us new information. We have to stand by these scientists. I know some of these people that, I mean, they're sleeping on cots in the research labs and stuff working to find answers to this. I don't have a critical word to say about 
these people, even if we've gotten bad information from them. It was the best they had at the time. And who knows, will there be 75,000 more suicides or not? God, I hope not. But what I do know is, it's like Mark Twain said, it's not what you don't know that gets us in trouble so much as it is what we know for sure that's just not so. You know, we're so damn sure we know something, as it turns out, we didn't know that at all. And we've just got to be open-minded to it. You know, um, you raised, a, raised something that uh, uh, I know Nancy's living with every day. As you know, she's the chair of the Board of Trustees of Skidmore College, and they're struggling with whether to, you know, reopen on campus in, in the fall. And and the president of my alma mater, Brown, wrote a, a very provocative article in the uh, New York Times uh, Sunday newspaper a week ago. Uh, where she said, you know, here's here's Brown's plan to have students on on campus. Uh, uh, is that something that that should happen? Shouldn't happen? Uh, I, I just I don't know the answer, but it's a. I think that is whether we reopen schools for kids to interact with teachers and each other is probably one of the biggest issues that we're facing in the next three months. Well, I think so as well, and the students are mostly anxious to go back to school. And, you know, the parents are, of course, scared to death because we don't know about a vaccine. We don't know about antibodies. We have so many contradictory stories, but we've got to get out of the blame game. It's not about blaming people for not having answers or giving us things that they then backtrack on. It's like saying, okay, it is what it is. The thing that I'm so concerned about is we have to look at both sides of the equation. There are despair deaths from the quarantine and the loss, the economical impact, and not just in the United States. Let me tell you, when you get into some of the lesser developed countries, there is no question in my mind that as the GDP has gone up, that more people have moved above the poverty line. And as the world economy goes down, those people are going to fall below the poverty line. And we know when they do, the care they get is less and less. And that costs lives as well. We just have to think about that. Uh, no question about it. And, and you know, the, the um, Nancy and I have talked about this a lot. You know, learning online is is okay and and you can learn things, but I learned way more in college in the dorm and, and uh, at the boathouse and at the gym uh, than uh, I did, or at least as much as I did in the classroom. It's that interaction uh, where you're exposed to people from different walks of life and the, the late night debates in the dorm room, uh, dormitory, uh, where one person is taking one side and the other is taking another. That is part of our education. That's part of our educational experience, and we just can't lose that. We we can't uh, lose that interaction. Uh, and uh, you know, I worry about it all walks of life. You know, as it gets easy to order online, so you don't go into a store, you don't get to try something on, you don't get to pick it out, you don't get to uh, interact with the retail. Uh, that that's maybe a something that the, the train has left the station, but we can't let that train leave the station in the educational sphere. We've got to put students together so they can 
learn from each other. And there's got to be a way to do that safely. There are studies being done now that show that this virus is much more widespread, more and more people, I mean, by huge factors, have been infected by this than have been counted, which means the death rate is much smaller. Because if you only think X number of people have been infected and then you count up how many people have tragically passed, then it's a high percentage. If you find out that a thousand times as many people have been infected, then the percentage goes way, way down. And we have to figure out how we can protect those that are vulnerable and also respect the capacity of our medical system to respond if there's a surge in a community. I mean, it seems to me from a behavioral standpoint, when I look at this from a medical psychological standpoint and you say, okay, Dr. Phil, what are the behavioral issues here? Do we not need to, number one, protect the vulnerable? When we reopen the world, if we know that people over 65 or over 70, whatever the mark is, are the most vulnerable, and those with underlying conditions like COPD or asthma or lung cancer or any kind of immunosuppressing disease or disorder are uncommonly at risk, then don't we need to make extraordinary efforts to protect them and then also not use a one-size-fits-all but watch and see city by city, do they have the capacity if they lessen the restrictions to handle a surge if it occurs. And if you're doing those two things, if you're protecting the vulnerable and you're prepared for a surge should it occur, then it seems to me that we need to start thinking about ways to safely, responsibly, commonsensically, and scientifically guided start moving back into the world. No question about it. And I don't know when that is, but people are doing it now. I mean, they're doing it whether you want them to do it or not. People are starting to migrate to that because they've hit a breaking point. Yeah, you, you, you see these uh, isolated, and I hope they stay isolated, uh, acts of uh, civil disobedience. Um, uh, that, that's not a good place to go. But, but the governed and, and the governors uh, have, both have responsibilities. The governors have responsibilities to promulgate rules that are reasonable and make sense, uh, and then the governed have to uh, obey them, even if they disagree with them. We're now in a in a period where some people are saying, "I don't believe in that law, therefore I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, pass it." As as lawyers, we don't we don't think anybody should go there. That, you know, if you don't like a law, then you challenge it in court. And, of course, that's happening, too. Well, I've read and listened to some of the videos and documents that have been taken down from Facebook and other social media platforms. And I was appalled that they had been taken down. And some of them I just didn't agree with at all. I mean, the content of it. I thought, this is moving too fast. You're telling people to get back out there too soon. You're telling them to disregard the very things that have allowed us to slow the roll on this pandemic. I don't agree with what you're saying, but they had a legitimate point of view 
They were medical doctors. They were responsible professionals that were just giving their point of view. How in the world can we be in America and take that down where people don't have the right to consider it, think about it, and then throw it away or not? Well, because the First Amendment really applies to governmental action, but at the same time, you have, if enough people rise up against this takedown, I mean, in, in essence, it's, it's censorship is what's going on. And it's censorship on the basis of uh, an alleged or perceived misinformation, just because they may, really, it's a disagreement on points of view. It's not even necessarily disagreement on facts. But how can that happen? I think, uh, at least with Facebook or, or social media such as that, if you have enough people who, again, rise up and complain about it, uh, they can do it. There may be, I mean, there are always these issues about how close Facebook is or the social media, how much power they have, that there should be restraints put on them by the government. But then that gets very sticky as well. I don't think, I, th I think the better aspect is, is it's up, it's up to the citizenry to, to make their voice known that they will not tolerate that. Yeah, you know, the, the, these uh, uh, internet platforms uh, have got uh, immunity from suit, uh, Section 230 immunity, and uh, the thought behind that was uh, that we want to we wanna create uh, freedom on the internet for people to say whatever they want, and these platforms are just going to be like a bulletin board, uh, and they're not going to uh, have any interactive role with the bulletin board. Whoever wants to put something up on the bulletin board gets to do it. <clears throat> but now, uh, you know, these platforms are being drawn into making decisions about content that is posted uh, on their platforms. For example, if there's a copyright violation, well, the, the owner of the copyright writes and says, hey, take that down, you're violating my copyright. So they take it down. And if somebody writes in and says this is pornographic this is this is smut this is obscene they, they take it down and then you know you can see where it leads uh so now all of a sudden the platforms which were supposed to be static are now being drawn into uh, content regulation well fine they're private private uh companies but they're jeopardizing their immunity from a lawsuit so that's going to get either taken away or it's going to get modified uh, in the future. Uh, and what result that will have, I don't know. Uh, I worry about that because you don't want to open up uh, for more litigation about the content of speech. It's the worst thing you can be doing, uh, but that may be where we're headed. Yeah, but I think y'all make a good point that I think we all need to remember is these First Amendment guarantees are against government muzzling. It's about the government can't muzzle us. It doesn't mean that we have to let somebody come over on our front porch and preach what they believe. Right. Exactly right. Exactly it's, right. It's just the government can't tell them they can't do it. Right. Right. And, well, you know, government has a role. If I want to protest on a public street uh, and somebody, you know, comes and you know, tries to exercise the heckler's veto, like, you know, drown out my voice and throw water balloons at me and everything. Well, the government has to step in there and say, no, 
they get to speak and you get to speak, but you can't. You, you can't, can't throw water balloons. You can't. You can't throw water balloons. No water you, balloons. And you can't incite violence, and you can't create a hazard in the in the middle of the highway, and all of that. But we're talking about social media here, and you know, yeah. I, I guess the thing that bothers me is maybe not so much what is being said, because as I say, when I look, I've gone back and charted these things out and looked at what was said by the World Health Organization originally. And, you know, there's there's been ambiguity on topics about is this airborne? Is it not airborne? Does it adhere to surfaces? Does it not adhere to surfaces? How long does it last on a surface? Uh, what does it take to clean it? Which medications might help? Which ones might not help? I mean, there's been so much back and forth about all of this. And I, I get it. Everybody's trying to find answers, so they're doing the best that they can. I want people to remember that there are different ways to lose your life, your health, and well-being in this. And there's more than just the virus attacking you physiologically and robbing you of your health, that there are mental and emotional issues here that cannot be ignored, and we have to start paying attention to those. You know, what are the triggers for our children? As you say, are they going to be afraid to go back to school? When people do go back to work, are they going to have PTSD? If somebody sneezes in the building, is it going to be like somebody yelled, fumble, in a football game and everybody dives under a desk. I mean, what what are people going to do? And I think we need to start talking about this on every platform that we can and letting people know, hey, these are the red flags to watch for. Here's what to do if you see this happening in your life or that of a loved one. Part of these stimulus packages need to be providing for mental health and care and support of young and old alike on the psychological side of things. I saw something recently that I thought was very telling. There have been certain crises in the world where first-line responders began to have nightmares that were consistent in terms of content. For example, those that were involved in Hiroshima, those in World War II in, in general, Vietnam, 9-11, we find that people were having nightmares with very consistent themes. So you would have somebody half a world away that was a first-line responder having the same nightmare as someone in Brooklyn. And what was the nightmare? It was about being overwhelmed. And sometimes it would be uh, no symbolism. It would just be, you know, this virus is, is going to penetrate my personal protective equipment and get me, and I'm going to take it home and, and give it to my children, and we're all going to die. And then others would symbolically replace that with, like slithering eels or ants or rats or something that would just be overwhelming them and they would have these nightmares. That's the level at which this is impacting people, uh, particularly the, these first-line responders. 
And when it rises to that level, then you know it's having an impact and we can't ignore that. There was something that you had said earlier when we were talking about the hospitals and the um, uh, elective surgeries and things that are not going on and how, you know, the physicians and nurses and ERs and all are, are at risk and the hospital funding. But the other aspect of that that I don't think people are considering is the result is, is there's so much less access to health care and to mental health care. When, when these facilities shut down or these programs shut down and nobody, um, and, and it's not available any longer, uh, where are we then? Well, you're right. They're left with nowhere to go. There's le- they're left with no resource. And uh, it's just like early, de- early detection and early intervention with a physical disorder. If you're having emotional issues, maybe you're delusional, maybe you're in the early stages of schizophrenia or depression or whatever, and you have nowhere to go, no help to get, no medication, no one to talk to, that's not going to get better on its own, particularly with an overlay of stress and pressure. Worrying about finances, jobs, health, all of that is just going to make it worse and worse and worse. So what do you say to the average citizen? How can they be heard in such a way to open up the dialogue? What do they do? How do they have an impact on this? Well, there are all sorts of avenues. So the great thing about the Internet is uh, that you can, you know, everybody's a publisher. So uh, you can can send your own message out on, on one of these platforms or you can create your own platform. Uh, you could do it through traditional media. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, president of Brown, Chris Paxson, has had an enormous impact by a, an article she wrote on the op-ed page about opening uh, the universities to students. Uh, you can you can stand up on a corner. I, I you know I was jogging the other day, uh, and they had they had opened the beaches here and then they closed them, and there were I don't know six people out by the beach. Uh, you know, just complaining about that with signs and a t- TV truck rolled up and uh, and started interviewing them. So, uh, you know, and these were, were they weren't like, you know, yellers or screamers or they were just very uh, thoughtful uh, people who wanted who had a point of view and they were out there expressing it. And uh, it's a it's a healthy thing. And, you know, the good thing about our country uh, you know, when a scientist uh, reports uh, disturbing news, uh, you know, we don't kill them. Uh, we don't muzzle them. Uh, you know, you hear them. You know, maybe social media will attack them or some people on social media. But in our country, and it's the genius of our country, I think, uh, is government does not stop people from talking. And it can't stop people from talking. Uh, the First Amendment keeps that from happening. So there are, there are just so many avenues. Uh, and, you know, people like you uh, have platforms, enormously influential platforms. And, you know, having worked from home, I'm seeing more of your uh, shows than... Uh, Sorry than about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing out a lot of, as you say, you know, terrific scientific uh, uh, information and scientists and interviewing them. And that's just a great thing to have a a platform like that. Uh, And it's just terrific in our country that we do that. Uh, Sure, there are incidents where 
people, uh, their voices are either shouted down or they're tried to, to, to be stopped by other private individuals. Uh, but if you want a message to get through in our country, you can, uh, it, it'll get through, I think. I guess we can have some objectives that we want to underline as we as we talk here. And, and number one is, let your voice be heard. I really am grateful for all of these people that have been working so hard to get us rolling again. Should we have gone into quarantine? I don't know. What I know is we're here now, and what do we do now? And I'm concerned about our children and the schools, and I'm concerned about people that are foregoing much-needed, important diagnostics and treatments that can wind up creating issues for them later. And I'm concerned about an economy that is being crashed and wiping away people's lifetime work. And we've got to figure out a way to pay attention to folks' reaction to all of that. The loss of life from despair, the loss of life from losing everything people have worked for, the loss of life from loneliness. And that doesn't mean the loss of life from viruses any less important. It's critically important. But is anyone less of a loss because they were lost to despair and being so forlorn and existentially lost that they just couldn't go on versus somebody that lost their life to the virus? I mean, a loss is a loss to a family, and I don't think either one should be taken lightly or neglected, and I hope they talk about it. And that's why I'm asking you guys, how do we get people to be more outspoken about that? And I I think you've said, use the platform you've had. Beat your drum. You don't have to wait for somebody to give you permission. You have permission. Right. I mean, it's... It shouldn't, you can write to your local newspaper. I mean, here and where we are in Florida, there's a small, well, you know, there are letters to the editor. You get out in the community. Um, you just talk to people. I mean, people need to take it upon themselves to, to just start the conversation and to try and keep the emotion out of it probably as best they can and keep, you know, the hyperbole and the rhetoric out, but just start, start the conversation. Uh, they can write to their representatives. They can write to the congressman. They can write to the president. Um, there, there are active steps that people can take that way. And you can be passionate without being wild. You don't have to run into the courthouse like your hair's on fire. I mean, you can go in there with passion and commitment. You don't have to look like you've gone completely insane. And not everybody can run to the courthouse with their hair on fire. Yeah, I didn't. I so lobbed you a softball. Come on. Uh, Well, here's a question for the two of you. I mean, you're as far away in the country as we could be from each other right now. Uh, God bless Zoom. That's a word I didn't even have my vocabulary four months ago. It's now part of my everyday life. Where do you predict we will be? in the fall. Will this country be open? Will our children be back in school? Will you be doing jury trials? Will I have an audience at Paramount? 
what do you, what do you guys predict come fall? Well, honestly, Phil, this is a thought I've had, and I, I don't know what it means, but I, I keep thinking that one of these days we're, we are going to kind of wake up and go, well, that was a mistake. We're going to get on with our life as it was. And I know that's not going to happen. I would hope that the way things are moving, these things seem to be moving more quickly now on the uh, science vaccine and, and treatment end. Um, but I think it's going to be October, November before things really get going. I'm hoping the schools will open in September, but maybe not till October. I'm, I'm thinking maybe November and probably really not until the first of the year. Do you think Skidmore is going to have class op- classes on campus in uh, September? Uh, we're going to, I think they're trying, they're working on those plans right now and, and it may be a modified, um, Project. I mean, being a residential college, uh, residential liberal arts college, it's mostly hands-on learning, but the there are issues so they're talking about if you have to limit it to one bathroom per student, that could you know cut our student body down to 600 students on campus at any given time versus 2,400. So those those are big decisions, uh, and it'll. We'll see what happens. But they're, they're working on that now. And it also well, depends on the governor. This goes back to something Chip said earlier. And just forgive me for the shameless plug for Skidmore. But I, I've had the opportunity to meet with the entire faculty at Skidmore. And I, I don't think I have ever met a more devoted and passionate group of educators in my entire life. And so I, I hearken back to what Chip said about how valuable it is to have uh, a motivated student body that can interact, the ability to walk into a professor's office during office hours and really debate something or talk about something or problem solve something. And I just think there would be no better place uh, that, that that would be optimized than at somewhere like Skidmore. I mean, that's just a, an amazing institution of higher learning. So I, I, I really hope you guys figure a way to break that code because chip you're right it's just so important yeah i i think different parts of the country are going to face different challenges and i think there uh, are some parts of the countries where the schools uh, will open with students uh, in september uh, i i don't think that all parts of the country will do that i think that you know some of the places that have had the most challenges, you know, New York City being the obvious one, uh, will have will have trouble opening in, in September. Sorry for Big Ben in the background, by the way. Uh, yeah, I feel very uh, regal every time it goes off. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and uh, you, this one uh, is not going to be as long as the last one, but... Uh, but uh, but I think that everybody's trying, and everybody I think recognizes that the sooner we can get get back uh, to interacting with each other uh, at the school level, at the retail level, at the restaurant level, at the bar level, uh, the better off we're going to be. And as you say, we just have to do it uh, as safely as we can. Uh, and it's it's a risk reward type thing. We have to see how much risk we're willing to take. Uh, in order to reap the, the uh, rewards. Uh, but I think some parts of the country, you'll see kids in school in September. 
Well, I certainly hope we can find a a safe way to do that, to give our kids a, a rich experience. I've talked to so many that it's been very painful for in May now for seniors that are prom uh, is going to be missed, graduation and those festivities, what they've worked so hard for to walk that stage and and receive that diploma and see their parents out there so proud of them and everything at high school level, college level. It's just really a a, a sad thing to see it be taken away from so many people. And um, I, I hope they all take the pictures. I hope they put on the dress, put on the tux, put on the uh, the cap and gown, take the pictures. They'll have better stories to tell about those pictures than any other time ever. This was this was my pandemic prom. Uh, we did it six months later, and uh, maybe nobody will want to by then. But you know, maybe they will. Who knows? Oh, yeah. I think they will. <laughs> well, I sure hope so. And and look, I, my attitude about this is just come on, let's let's really start having a dialogue. I'm again. I, I thank every scientist and and politician that has worked so hard on this from the, the city mayors, the, the county commissioners, the, the governors, the senators, the representatives in Washington, and all the first-line responders. I, I've had so much opportunity to interact with these men and women that get up every day and go to these hospitals like in New York City where they know the air is filled uh, with the, the virus, and then, then they have to go home and they're spouse and children are there and worry about, am I going to infect them? And, but yet they still show up every day and, and do what they do. And I've always said, crises don't make heroes. They just reveal who people already were. And boy, has this one revealed a lot of heroes in America. And I'm sure glad it did. We got one in our family. Our, our nephew is a doctor in New York who, uh, uh, staffs a clinic and uh, in Queens. In Queens, his wife uh, said it, it wasn't a matter of whether we were going to get this; uh, just a matter of when. And sure enough, he got it, and then she got it, uh, and they got over it. Three and, little boys at home under the age of seven. Yeah, and we, who and didn't? They were both sick. Didn't get it, but but he he got over it, and he's back in the clinic. I mean, you know, isn't that amazing? Yeah, working twenty four seven, trying to help other people. Yeah, and working so overworked, which compromises your immune system, which is the worst thing you could do, but yet they keep doing it anyway. So, I mean, God bless them all. Well, Nancy, Chip, I I appreciate you weighing in on this, and I really appreciate your point of saying everybody has a street corner, whether it's social media or their local newspaper or their church or their neighborhood, everybody has a street corner that they can get up on a box and say what they think. And maybe when enough people register in, then maybe some of the censorship will stop. But what I hope is that we can store some of the hate, put it away and, and, you know, have some gratitude, whether you agree with them or don't have some gratitude for all of our leadership that's been working on this and have some gratitude certainly for the scientists that are working around the clock. I don't care if they had wrong information a month or two months ago. They gave us what they had. This is 
this is new. That's why they call this a novel virus. It's new. They're not misleading us for profit or something. They're telling us what they know when they know it and revising it when they can. We just have to keep up with it and find a trusted source and rely on that source and keep track of what they're telling you. So, uh, and, and please hear me when I say these, these deaths due to despair, PTSD, anxiety, all of these things add up. We have to pay attention to ourselves feeling this and to our loved ones showing the warning signs. And when you see it, you know, always say you see something, say something. You see something with a loved one, go say something to them. Just say, hey, how are you feeling? Is there something I can help you with? Would you like to talk some? Is there some way I can help? Just knowing that somebody cares makes a huge, huge difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, I, I know we're at the end of the rope here, uh, Bill, but I want to thank you. Uh, for introducing the nightmare of the slithering eel. Uh, I'm about to go to bed here on the East Coast, and so that's, that's what I'm going to take and from I, the... I'm the one who has the nightmares every night. <laughs> he has to wake me up all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but well, uh, we'll, uh, that slithering eel will be uh, uh, part, of my, uh, part of my evening tonight. Well, just, I'm so glad I could make a contribution. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. You bet. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks, Joe.